Welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold, and we're the fourth Sunday of Lent. And it's the story from the Gospel of John where Jesus uh, heals a man born blind. And as the man born blind learns to see and comes to faith, the Pharisees who are attacking Jesus uh, begin to see less and less until they're blind. Well, what's at the heart of it? Well, the heart of it is the belief that God loves you and that in loving God and your neighbor, you start to see the world differently. So we see not with our eyes, but with our mind. There was a great father of the church, St. Theophilus of Antioch, a friend of God and is what that name means. And here's what he wrote in the second century. God is seen by those who have the capacity to see him provided that they keep the eyes of their minds open. All have eyes, but some have eyes that are shrouded in darkness, unable to see the light of the sun. Because the blind cannot see it, it does not follow that the sun does not shine. The blind must trace the cause back to themselves in their eyes. And in the same way, if you have eyes in your mind that are shrouded in darkness because of your sins and evil deeds, is it a wonder that you don't see? A person's soul should be clean, like a mirror reflecting light. If there is rust on that mirror, his face cannot be seen in it. So we see with the eyes of our mind, and how do we protect our intellect, or ability to see the world correctly? I would suggest you that the spiritual and the corporal works of mercy are essential. So as we turn to the second Sunday in ordinary time, let's remember the role we play in our own blindness and how it is that we might learn to see. When infants are born, they're unable to focus their eyes. You know, that's why you can look right up at them and their little eyes just don't seem to pick you up. Light to them is just a blur of information at that age. At birth, the baby's vision is not nearly as good as a one-year-old child. And what's the difference? Well, the one-year-old child's brains had a year to grow and understand all the information flooding through their eyes. You see, all the visual stimulation we take for granted is flooding into our eyes, but our brains can't process all that information. That's one of the things about protecting our eyes because they're the windows to the soul. And to let things into our heads, into our hearts, this can distort us. You know, we can't really focus further sometimes in the end of our nose, especially when uh, for little children, I guess. But you can be like that as an adult. Because that 8 to 10 inches beyond your nose, that's the distance where your mom or your dad's face was as they looked deeply in your eyes trying to make a connection probably all their life trying to make that connection with you. The, the babies, you see, can't coordinate the movement of their eyeballs or their hand-eye coordination. That's why they're sometimes reaching out as they're trying to use different senses to try to focus and make sense of the world. You know, it, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think about the spiritual life like that. Prayer, reaching out, trying to touch God, acts of mercy, the spiritual and the corporal works of mercies, ways to try to connect with God uh, so that we can learn to focus and understand. So in the gospel today, when Jesus healed the blind man, 
There were at least some there who knew that he was blind from birth. His parents, questioned by the Pharisees, certainly knew. But they're in trouble. They were afraid of what the Pharisees would do to them. So let's go back and talk to this story about the man born blind, the role the Pharisees played in it, the role the parents in it played in it, and how this man came to faith. As the church celebrates the fourth Sunday of Lent, we're getting ready for Holy Week. And the story of the man born blind is an encounter Jesus has on the way to Holy Week. Because, you know, for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story of the Last Supper is this little short story that focuses on the bread and the wine and Jesus' words about the Eucharist. Because for them, that was the key takeaway. But when John wrote about the Last Supper, he pointed out a lot of things happened at that supper beyond just they sat down, Jesus said a couple of things, they ate some bread and drank some wine and moved on. It is about how it is to understand God. And we're gonna get more deeply into that later in Lent um, and certainly in the liturgical year. But this story about coming to sight in faith, this is a key story. So it's from chapter nine of John, and I'm gonna read the short version. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva and smeared the clay on his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back able to see. His neighbors and those who had seen him earlier as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is. But others said, No, he just looks like him. He said, I am. They brought the one who had once who had once been blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus had made clay and opened his eyes on a Sabbath. So then the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and now I can see. So some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinful man do such signs? And there was division among them. And so they said to the blind man again, what do you have to say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. They answered and said to him, you were born totally in sin and you're trying to teach us. Then they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found him and said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered and said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And the one who is speaking with you is he. And he said, I do believe, Lord. And he worshiped him the gospel of the Lord. You know, you get a snippet of what's in the long version of that story, but I'd like to keep this under a half hour. So in the long version of the story, you get all the intellectual processes of the Pharisees, the parents, and the man born blind. How they make sense of what Jesus did, because that's at the heart of it, isn't it? We all get the same data, basically. We see the earth in similar ways. I mean, the mountains are the same for all of us, whether you're an atheist or a theist, right? How is it that our minds are able to come away with such completely diverse and contradictory opinions about reality? So over the Pharisees, the Pharisees are divided, kind of like our modern church is divided. Some people seeing God's work in Pope Francis, some thinking he's not from our side, 
from the side of God. I mean, it's, it's crazy. But this is modern thinking because it's human thinking. And it's exactly how the Pharisees thought. Just the lack of trust for God. Because think of the data. God does, Jesus does, what according to a rabbinic tradition God did, that he made mud, and that's how he made a human being. Do you remember that? He made Adam from, from the earth. And so in some rabbinic uh, traditions, he spat and made mud. And so what's Jesus do? He does what God does. He recreates this man by making mud and smearing it on his eyes. The Pharisees see it's on the Sabbath. And you have to be somewhat sympathetic to the Pharisees. They are trying to be faithful to the Torah and the, the call of keep holy the Sabbath, which is one of the first three uh, uh, commandments that God gives. But it's the faulty way they reason. If you say you can't do anything on the Sabbath, you can't make anything, then Jesus has to be a sinner. So trust your interpretation of scripture, not what you see. And my interpretation of scripture is if you make something on the Sabbath, you're a sinner. And so if he heals somebody by making something on the Sabbath, he must be a sinner. And so Jesus is not from God. That's the reasoning. But it's the wrong premise to start with. Others, the other Pharisees who are arguing about it said, well, wait a minute. God doesn't listen to sinners. You have to be a good man for God to listen to you. And so if he did something good, it must mean he's a good man. But they don't know how to reconcile it with their interpretation of what the Sabbath is. And so sometimes, at least in this instance, religious rules seem to get in the way of the understanding of God. Um, why? Because it's the wrong order of love. You know, Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine talked about the right order of love. And just in brief, uh, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and all your strength. Because you love God, you learn to love what God did in you, and that you can learn to love yourself and forgive yourself and do good things for yourself, not narcissistically, but understanding what your needs are. Don't drive yourself nuts. Oh, and then learn to love your neighbor. And Aquinas breaks it out into spouse, parents, children, the poor, and this, this hierarchical order of who you should take care of. But start with that basic understanding is that how it is that you see yourself and how God is working in your life is also how you see God working in other people's lives. So, and I say this, one of my best lines in the confessional, when people say, yes, they beat up on themselves. And then I point out they beat up on other people. And then I always like to ask, if you're beating up on yourself and you're beating up on the people in your family, do you think there's possibly a connection? And so that the idea to learn good, healthy self-love, to recognize that you're an individual, a human being, and that you're, um, that you're limited, uh, that's humility. And understanding your own uh, failures, your own limited ability to learn to love uh, yourself also means that you show that same kind of mercy towards others. If you want to be fed, you ought to be willing to feed others. If you want to be clothed, you ought to be willing to clothe others. That sense of what you see as good for yourself also reaches out to others. This is the locus of the works of mercy, which I'm going to turn to and talk about in a little bit. But I don't want to give up yet on this scripture. So think about it as you think about what uh, 
some of the uh, concerns that you have about whether uh, being a Catholic or living in the country. What's your starting premise? Um, for the Pharisees, it's the Sabbath is holy. You can't make anything on the Sabbath. If you make something on the Sabbath, it can't be from God. Or is your starting premise is, um, God, someone did something really good. They must be connected to God somehow. Uh, and so um, it's, can this man not be from God? So th think about how it affects out into the larger community. So in the longer version of the story, uh, the Pharisees go and they talk to this man's mother and dad and ask if it's true that this man was born blind. Well, they've been threatening any, everybody in the Gospel of John that if you follow Jesus, they're going to kick you out of the synagogue because they control access to the synagogue. And so they want to uh, use God to punish other people. You either come along with our desire to control you or we'll separate you from the community and God. You don't have to go too far to think about those kinds of factors that work in the Catholic Church also. But think about how it works in this way. It, it distorts these people. Um, they say, mom and dad say about their son, well, come on, he's of age, you can ask him. I mean, remember the, fifth, the fourth commandment for the Catholics, fifth commandment, I think, in the Protestant Bible, honor your father and your mother. What happens when you go from love of God, keep holy the Sabbath, to perverting the relationship between mother and father and child over religious control? There really is an indictment of uh, the bullying way that religion can be used in this story. And we ought to pay attention to that as we think about how it is that we evangelize and bring the gospel to others. Then there's the third group. It's the Pharisees, the one, they're very divided. Mom and dad, um, the fourth commandment, remember their son's supposed to honor them, but they don't honor their son. And then you get to, the, to because of the Pharisees bullying, then you get to the man. And when asked about how Jesus heals him, he's trying to figure it out. It's like this little kid, right? Whose brain is trying to uh, adjust to this inflow of information. What do you do with all this good fortune? I've been blind from birth and now I can see. And you can see his brain trying to understand it. And if you read the long version of the story in John 9, he goes from describing what Jesus did and then he can see when he's trying to explain what Jesus did. He said he's a prophet. And then as mom and dad go blind, the Pharisees go blind, by the end, the man born blind sees something that nobody else sees. And why does he see Jesus and worship him? Because he's been shown mercy. That's what brings him to God. He was touched by this uh, influx of grace, a man that uh, really didn't deserve being healed. None of us deserve being healed. It seems coarse to say it because we like to think we earn things, but we don't. So much is just given to us. And recognizing that this uh, blind man worships Jesus. Why is Jesus God? Because he does what God does. He heals, he forgives, he uh, restores broken humanity. How can you be really God without being Jesus? That's why you believe in the gospel. Why does this man believe that Jesus is the son of God and worships him? 
I like what John Henry Newman said about why he believed. He said there was no one reason. He said there were 10,000 reasons. But in the end, it was because he thought and believed that the divinity of Christ was true, and this is who God must be. Nobody else makes God present like Jesus makes him present. And that's why in learning how it is to be in that right order of love, love of God, proper love of self, love of neighbor, starting with parents, spouse, children, people in your community, the poor, that it's the works of charity, uh, spiritual and corporal, that open us up to the love of God. So why don't we take a short meditation as we kind of go through um, the spiritual works of mis- uh, mercy. The corporal works are pretty clean, uh, pretty clear, right? Uh, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned, um, bury the dead. Uh, all of these things, I think, are really straightforward. I hope that uh, you understand them. But let's go to the spiritual works of mercy and take a little time and talk about those. So the man born blind comes to faith because of Christ's mercy. Our willingness to show mercy to others will have that same effect on others. And so let's just go through the spiritual works of mercy and uh, uh, talk about how it is that we should try to live these spiritual works of mercy as we finish hard in these last three weeks of Lent. So the first spiritual work of mystery is to instruct the ignorant. You know, religion requires sound teaching, good sound uh, dogma, but it's more than just information because you can teach people right out of the catechism, but uh, people can read and come up with different meanings out of the same words. Um, And so teaching religion is also being an example of how to live religion. That's how the rabbis taught in the ancient world. The student would come and listen with the rabbi and they would learn not just the Torah, but they'd learn how this rabbi lived it. That's what it means to live the faith and teach the faith. You know, ignorance is not stupidity. Ignorance is just not knowing. Um, Communicating Christian wisdom as a way of life is not, you know, coming up with apologetic answers as great as those can be. But it's about putting into practice those things that we know are true. You know, arguments have their place, but boy, if they're pursued in a mean-spirited way, they're really very counterproductive. There is no point to one-upping people. Nobody loves to one-up people better than me, by the way, friends. But I know there's no point to it. (laughs) Instead, it's just saying the truth and letting it sit there. Um, You don't have to be the last word in every argument. And so instructing the ignorant Just say the truth and leave it at that. Who knows? Maybe something got through and they'll think about it. This next spiritual work of mercy is to counsel the doubtful. Arguments and the reasonableness of faith aren't the only part of this whole puzzle, how you evangelize and make people love the human face of God, that is Jesus. But to counsel the doubtful requires patience and accompanying, being willing to sit with someone. God doesn't need us to defend him, 
But people who are hurting and have come to doubts, they do need our patient forbearance. Sometimes it's just, it's like a little baby looking out and it's just, everything is so overwhelming. Probably don't remember how nice it was to be in our mother's womb next to her beating heart. And then suddenly, painfully, I guess, for mom and baby, just thrust into this world and so many things coming at us. We are in so many ways so overstimulated. But to counsel the doubtful is to have wise words to say. But maybe it also means just the willingness to sit with someone and have dinner or spend time. How about to admonish the sinner? You know, um, I think that admonishing the sinners isn't so much about calling them to judgment. Um, it's calling them to a better way of life. I, I, just, I, I just don't believe that if you find people that are living a life other than what is consistent with the gospel, and lots of Catholics do that, um, that just telling them over and over uh, that they're sinning, that's not helpful. I thought one of the best books on it was The Prodigal You Love by Sister Teresa Alethea Noble. Um, she talks about when she was a kid and her dad was like a theology teacher somewhere in the Midwest. Got fired. Oh, she got ticked off. She said, she, I think it was about 14. And she put it together with her juvenile um, uh, high-mindedness, which is how could I believe in a God that makes a world where you know children suffer? To her credit, she actually tried to do something about it. I think she joined the Peace Corps, but she was an atheist. So she told mom and dad that she's an atheist and uh, she goes off to college. And I always like to think maybe this isn't true. She dyes her hair pink, uh, pierces various parts of her body, uh, and then moves in with her boyfriend. And she says that she brought her boyfriend home very proudly to confront her parents with her newfound freedom, you know, that she was having sex with this guy in college. And uh, she said, her mother just said to her one time, this isn't how you were raised. This isn't your best interest. Either marry him or break up. She got so ticked off, she took her boyfriend and she stormed out, very high-minded that anyone should try to lecture, especially her mother. And she said her mother never mentioned it again. And in reflection, what she said was, she didn't have to, because I never forgot it. You know, when you turn admonishing the sinner into nagging or bullying or dominating. Every time you repeat it, you just give more reasons for them to resent, rebel, and uh, what? Make their own choices for their freedom, and their freedom is from you. Uh, first thing as a parent, you know, maybe the conversion of your children isn't something you're gonna accomplish in life. Maybe God has somebody else set out for that. But the second thing is don't forget that in their lives, because you looked in their little eyes when they were born, you'll always have a special place. You don't have to nag. You don't have to constantly repeat what you think. Just say it once and leave it alone. Let it go from there. Um, if it's good, wise counsel, you really don't have to keep repeating it. So here's another one um, when you're admonishing the sinner and you're giving good, wise counsel like I just talked about. Um, don't ever be afraid to ask someone if, if they've thought about being a Catholic. Um, 
you might be surprised at the answer. I'm often surprised at it. I think that there are certain kinds of barriers to being Catholics. First of all, it's the horror of having to go through the RCIA. Are you telling me I've spent close to a year learning about God? I know that seems silly, but people uh, have it in their heads as a huge obstacle. Um, how do you walk with people? Um, well, when, at least the idea I have about admonishing the sinner is you just say some choices in life are just not as wise as others. Um, that fidelity in relationships, generosity with others, these are uh, much more positive plans for life. And by the way, it's consistent also with God's will and uh, to give what you understand to be really pursuing the good and to think that's part of the structure of the universe. Well, maybe other ways of life that we would call sin is a rational disconnection from God. And that may be a little light for people, but I don't know. I talk to people like that. I don't know how successful I am, but that's how I think about it. Here's another spiritual work of mercy. Bear wrongs patiently. Oh, this is a tough one. And I just think of a tough year, especially when people act so badly. Um, it really does push your pride. And so to bear wrongs patiently, maybe God's inviting all of us to grow in humility. There's a good lesson for Father John Arnold, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, because it takes great humility to just bow your head and know you're being dealt with badly. Um, but um, better than blowing up, pouring gas on the fire, going tit for tat. So think about it like that. You may not be able to pull off patient, ver patience very well, but you don't have to make the world a worse place by just getting down to the mud with everybody else. Forgive offenses willingly. You know, forgiveness isn't the same thing as reconciliation. Reconciliation is when, wow, what a misunderstanding, and you can look each other in the eye and your relationships come stronger. That happens in marriages and it's beautiful. But forgiveness is a different thing related to reconciliation, but not the same thing. Forgiveness is my choice not to be dominated by the spirit of revenge or tit for tat. Forgiveness is really as much about freeing me from the burden of sin as it is about the well-being of other people. Uh, but it could be that in the freedom that you show and just moving on with the relationship, recognizing that there's something very disturbing there, that if injustice, you can't rectify it, at least you don't make it worse, and possibly in your good example of forgiveness, you might make spiritual growth, growth closer to God for you and your neighbor possible. Okay, comfort the afflicted. Go to funerals, right? People who have great loss, just be with them. Um, you know, I, I talk to people who lose all the time in marriage and work and personal relationships and death. And, you know, I like to think I'm better at it than I was in my 20s or my 30s. Um, so it's marginally so. Um, but just the fact that you take the time, the biggest thing it seems to me is don't try to fix what can't be fixed. Some things are just God-sized problems and only God's gonna fix it. And then here's one that I do daily and it's the last of the uh, spiritual works of mercy. Pray for the living and pray for the dead. Uh, just as part of your daily prayer. 
for all those, you would say, who have asked me to pray, even if I can't remember them, Lord, you do. And I lift them up in prayer, all the burdens of the world that you're made for, Lord, not me. I'm just a simple human being. I pray for my mom and dad. I pray for my nephew, Chris. I pray for David Horley, who I went to high school with. I pray for so many friends as they come to me. And I always think that if their name pops into my head, and I haven't thought of him forever, like Bill Tinney and John Lindbergh, to just say a prayer for them. Um, who knows what good comes from that? I just trust that great good comes from it. And so how do you come to sight? Well, just think of the spiritual works of mercy and the role that you play in the goodness in the world by instructing the ignorant, counseling the doubtful, admonishing the sinner, bearing wrongs patiently, forgiving offenses willingly, comforting the afflicted and praying for the living and the dead. You know, they all work together, but it's in that hierarchy of love. And I think it's like that story I told you at the beginning about how babies see. And St. Theophilus had seen it also, that you know, it's how we come to sight. Our minds are what we see with. And if our minds are capacious, if they're open to mercy, we are gonna see the world around us differently. If we're only focused on, you know, what can I achieve? What am I doing? Um, then, you know, not so much. That's why I love St. Therese. She says when she goes to God, and she was a very holy woman, she wanted to go to God, not with any good works that she had done. She wanted to go to God with empty hands because she says she knew from the time that she was a child, if that your hands were full, your parents couldn't give you anything. So to go to God with empty hands, not expecting anything, who knows what gifts he'll shower on you this Lent. So Holy Week is coming, my friends, where Jesus is basically the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy in the flesh, the human face of God. And as with the man born blind, he wants us to see. And so connecting with him through the works of mercy, um, it's the work of learning how it is that we can see God in one another and ourselves more clearly. God bless you on the fourth Sunday of Lent, and hopefully I'll see you next week.